You guys can have a seat this morning. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Mark. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 13. Um, That's going to be on page 888, if you're following along in the Pew Bible. And so last week we had the story of, excuse me, the guy being dropped through the roof, um, Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Um, And so it led to a question from the Pharisees of who can forgive sins but God alone. Excuse me. Um, Two weeks straight of like hay and pumpkins outside is not great for a voice in in the middle of allergy season on top of that, so uh, bear with me. Um, So we saw through that that Jesus was essentially saying, yes, I can forgive sins and I can also heal. So that was actually the first question of a five-question series, and so today we're going to cover the other four questions that we're going to see. So we're going to read it section by section. I'm going to kind of walk you through um, some of the things that you need to understand that are a little different culturally than what we know. Um, Sometimes you can read a passage and know exactly what they're talking about. This one, we have to do a little bit of work to understand what's behind the questions that are being asked. So we'll walk through it and then kind of explain it. We'll look at the question and then kind of see how that applies to us. And so that'll be our pattern as we go through. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 13. And so if you will read along with me, it says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't call to come the righteous, but sinners. And so we see Jesus walking beside the sea, and he calls Levi, who is also called Matthew, at a tax booth collecting taxes. Um, He calls him to follow him, very similar to what we saw with the fishermen um, earlier. And he calls and they follow. So it's important to know, if you didn't already know this, that tax collectors in this day, no surprise, um, were not well-liked. People were not big fans of them. It's an understatement that they weren't well-liked. They were actually pretty much hated because the way that they made their money was to charge you more than they were supposed to get from you. So anything they could get out of you above what they were required to get went into their pocket. And so they took extra They were also seen as working for Rome, which was just as bad. And so when a Jew became a tax collector, he was essentially regarded as an outcast in society. He was disqualified as a judge, before a judge as a witness. Um, He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And then the eyes of his community, his disgrace extended to his family. And so it wasn't just bad for him, it was bad for his family and those associated with him. And so it's interesting that this is the guy that Jesus chooses to call, since he was an outcast. It's also important to know that even though this profession um, was hated, there was actually a long waiting list to become one because of all the money that you could make. And so when Levi gets up and follows Jesus... 
<clears throat> All right, we got this. So when Levi gets up and follows Jesus, it's actually a bigger deal than the fishermen. Because if the fishermen, it doesn't work out, they can just go back to catching fish. Their business is still there. Their family business is still there. Still there. When Levi leaves, right, he can't go back. He can't be a tax collector again. He's giving up his, essentially his well-being, his way of life. And so somebody's going to take his position. And so after he calls him, right, we see him, Jesus, go with Matthew or Levi to his house, and some people are gathered together, and we're not sure why exactly they all gathered at Matthew's house, but they were together and they were eating there. And for us, this just looks like, right, a nice get-together. We got some friends together, there's food, they're eating, they're hanging out. It's just kind of a normal thing. But in this time, when you invited somebody to your house, you were essentially saying, I'm with this person. I support them. I will protect them. I will be their close friend. It was essentially an offer of peace, of trust, of brotherhood, of forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing your life. And so when Jesus eats with them, it isn't insignificant. It's right. It's not just a good way to spend the afternoon hanging out. He's saying, I'm with these people. I support them. I will help them. I will be their friend. This is what the Pharisees are taking issue with when they ask the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, background on the Pharisees, just real quick. They were the most influential religious party at the time. They were deeply devoted to the Mosaic Law, the law given to Moses. Think Ten Commandments, think Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, the books of the Bible where you, when you start your Bible reading plan, you're just like, I just got to get through these laws, right? That's what they're talking about. So they organized their lives and everything they did around the law, and not only that, actually their interpretation of the law that were handed down from generation to generation to maintain ceremonial purity. They wouldn't do anything to violate the law, which would include spending time with tax collectors and sinners because they were considered unclean. And if they spent time with them, then they would also be unclean. And so they were essentially accusing Jesus of violating the law and not separating himself from these people who were, con who were considered sinners. If he really was a religious leader, religious Jewish leader, he would be just like the Pharisees, and he would keep his distance from tax collectors and sinners, between the righteous and the sinners. And so that's what's behind their question. Why isn't he following the law and staying away from sinners? They're going to make him unclean. And so Jesus responds to their question. And he says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. This is a proverb that everybody there would know, and we pretty much understand this too, right? Um, it's pretty obvious. If I'm not sick, there's no need for me to go to the doctor. There's nothing to fix. There's no help that I need, so I can just keep going on my life. But then he adds to it, and he continues to clarify his mission to make disciples. Right? I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to help those who needed help, not those who think they are already righteous. This is a direct shot at the Pharisees who think they are already righteous due to their obedience to the law. So he's essentially saying, I didn't come for you because you think you're already okay and you don't need help. I came for the people who think they need help. So those who are broken, who are tired, who are weary, who are depressed, who are outcasts, who are downtrodden. 
What he's saying is the law doesn't determine who I reach out to. Grace and mercy determine that. Jesus didn't come for himself. He came for others. And so he needs to go and be with the people who need help. So what I want us to see from that is don't value isolation over evangelism, right? Which is what the Pharisees were saying. We've got to stay away from those people because they're going to make us unclean. It's going to rub off on us and make us dirty. But Jesus says, no, those are the people who need help. Those are the people who most need to hear this message. We should go to them. And so the question behind that is, do we avoid those who need Jesus the most and end up isolating ourselves from sinners? Because just like it was Jesus' mission to reach sinners, he handed that mission off to us. And that's what Mark is showing us in this whole book of how to be a disciple and what that actually looks like. And so, yes, as Christians, we do uphold certain moral standards. And so doing this kind of thing is a little more difficult than it seems. There is a balance and a tension here. We do support and encourage each other and even sometimes correct each other when we're living outside of what we think God would want us to do. Um, We have things like that spelled out in our church covenant of how we live together as members and in our doctrinal statement that guides us how to live. But those guidelines help us know when and how to interact with those who need to hear the gospel the most, but not compromise our lives as disciples. But as usual, we need to be careful that we don't go too far down that path so we don't end up isolating and insulating ourselves from the rest of the world. Then our mission and our effectiveness is diminished if we all just come together and we never interact with people outside of our circle. So how do we balance these, the inward focus versus the outward focus, the balance between taking care of each other and reaching out? And I just have some questions just to to you to help think through kind of what this might look like. Are you isolated and in a bubble, meaning are you only associating with Christians all the time and you never speak to somebody who disagrees with you or believes differently than you? As a church, are we welcoming? Are we approachable? Are we generous? And whether you're working or you're retired, do you ask, why does God have me here? Why am I in this place at this time, in this situation? Is there a purpose God has placed me in this office where it seems like there's no other believers anywhere around me? In our families and in our marriages, are we engaging with others or are we just coasting or being complacent in our relationships? In your circle of friends, does everyone look like and think like you? Right? Those would be things that you might look at to say, maybe I am isolating myself more than I think I am. Right? But that's what Jesus is asking us to consider. Not to be reckless, right? but to be balanced in the tension between being together as believers and reaching out to those who need the message of the gospel. And when we do that well, our worship and our fellowship are actually increased because of that. Right? If you remember being in a room with a new believer and the way that they worship, it's just different, right? And so when you're around those people, it kind of brings everybody up and reminds us of what we're really celebrating. So that's the first question. So let's look at verse 18 and get the second one. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so, a little later, people are fasting. Um, fasting was a regular practice of the Israelites, of the Jews. Um, it was prescribed on certain feast days, and so if you go back to the Old Testament, you can read through some of those, and some of them it requires them to feast for a certain number of days to prepare for a festival um, or a remembrance of what God has done. However, this passage doesn't really talk about those or say they're in the middle of one of those, which would be a significant um, event or a significant thing to note. But what the Pharisees have actually done is they have added in more days on top of what has been prescribed to them in the Mosaic law. They fasted actually on Mondays and Thursdays every week. So they are going over and above what Scripture has prescribed and expecting Jesus and the disciples to live up to their traditions. So that's kind of behind what this question, the next question, which is, why did John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus responds with three examples, right? The bridegroom, the cloth, and the widened skin. So for the bridegroom, right, you don't fast when you're in the middle of a party getting ready for a wedding. It's not the time to not eat or to pull away or to act like you're um, sacrificing things for a certain reason. One of the things that happened this time is um, when the Pharisees fasted, they kind of wanted everybody to know about it, and so they would dress a certain way and kind of make themselves look like weak, like, oh, I haven't eaten in so long, right? And so people would know that they were fasting, so it's really more about looking for me. So you don't really do that when you're getting ready for a wedding. It's a time of celebration, not for denial and, fast, denial and fasting. And then he says, when the groom leaves, then they will fast, this is actually, and we're going to come back to this at the end, this is actually the first veiled reference to Jesus' death, saying the bridegroom is going to be taken away, right? He's going to disappear, and on the day that he is taken away, they will fast then. Then he talks about cloth. He talks about putting a um, piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, right? If you're patching something up and you take new cloth and then you put it on old and then you wash it, um, for us, the new one that you put on shrinks, and then your hole is probably worse than it was before. So it's just the concept, that same concept. Um, then the wineskin, um, when they made wine in these days, they would put it in a wineskin, and as it fermented and prepared for you to be able to drink it, it would expand and stretch out the wineskin. And so if you put new wine into an old one, as it began to stretch, it wouldn't be able to stretch anymore, and it would just burst, and you would lose your wine. So that's what he's talking about when he uses these examples. And what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that he's doing something new. You can't put something new into something old. What Jesus came to do was new and different than Judaism and the Mosaic law that they were following. It wasn't disconnected, but it was new, a fuller way to live and to understand how to live out God's desires. 
He was breaking through their rigid and inflexible traditions in views of the law to bring compassion and grace. The kingdom of God did not operate with the same restraints that the Pharisees has imposed on with their traditions. So what I want us to see here is don't value your traditions over Scripture. Right? The Pharisees had gone over and above and added their traditions um, on top of Scripture about ways people should live, and they were trying to impose them on everyone else. So if you didn't do things the way the Pharisees did, then you weren't righteous in their eyes. Right? They would say things like, only the righteous do things the way we do. Or everybody else just needs to grow more so they can be on our level. Right? That's kind of the attitude that they were giving off. So the question for us is, do we allow our traditions to keep us from reaching people? And any church of any age has traditions. If you're a church that's two years old or a church that's 200 years old, everybody has their traditions, things that, a certain way of doing things. And some of you have been members of this church for longer than I've been alive, right? And so in a church and people that have been together that long, there are traditions. And so are we willing to be guided by Scripture and to evaluate our traditions and let go of them as needed? Because when we think of traditions, we probably usually think of family traditions or things that we do around the holidays. Um, if you're an athlete or a sports fan, there may be certain things that you do on game day that are traditions. Um, and if you don't do them, then like your team will lose or you'll play a bad game. Um, but we also develop these as churches. And sometimes traditions are good. There are good traditions in churches, but sometimes they begin to take a life of their own and you slowly drift from the purpose and direction of Scripture. Now, I was going to try to name some of those for us this morning, but as I was doing that, I realized traditions in a church are kind of tricky because they're not actually really obvious. The way they become obvious is when someone tries to change them or to do something different, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, no, no, we can't do that, and it's like a big deal. Right? When that reaction happens, it's a sign that there is a tradition behind that, that is coming from something. So if you find yourself saying, that was different and I don't really like it, it's possibly a tradition or a way of doing things um, that you are used to that maybe we've elevated too high. So in response, we should regularly review our guiding principles in the way that we live our lives and even the way we do church. And so here are questions just to evaluate kind of what we're doing or what we see or if you think it's something as a tradition. Do they truly help us understand the nature of God? Is this helping us grow in our faith? Are they still life-giving and they help us grow spiritually? Are they steadily becoming a restrictive code that when new people come in, it's too much for them? Do they still enable us to meet the needs of those around us whom we seek to serve in God's name? And so I think the, the call for us is to be aware and looking for traditions that we may have added on on top of Scripture and expecting other people to do those things. Instead of just saying, this is what the Bible says and that's what we're trying to do. And to be really open-handed and loose with everything else. 
So let's move on to the next one, verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. And then he told to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so this one and the next one are just are going to take place on the Sabbath. The da- Sabbath was the day of rest prescribed in Mosaic law. They were to do almost no work, no cooking. It was a day for rest and recovery. It comes out of creation when God created for six days and on the seventh day he rested. And so that was an example for them to follow from the law. And so we have, here we have Jesus and the disciples. They're walking through a field. Um, they're picking grain out of the field. Um, presumably, they're eating them either whole or they're kind of mashing them up in their hands and then eating it. Um, and so this was technically permissible under the Mosaic law, where you could pick grain on the Sabbath even from your neighbor's field. You just couldn't use any tools to do it. And so if you're picking with your fingers, totally fine. If you're like giving, getting something out and chopping it down, you can't do that on the Sabbath. But that's when the Pharisees come in and say, look, you're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds to them, and he refers to David. Um, When he was hungry, David was actually on the run from Saul, um, who was the king at the time, and he was worried that David was going to take his throne. And so he was essentially chasing David down, and David was on the run, and he goes to the priest, and he asks for bread, and the priest says, look, I don't have any bread. The only bread I have is the bread of the presence, which is kind of in the holy place that's only for God, and only a consecrated priest was able to eat that. Um, but David said, look, if you don't give me this bread, essentially we're all going to starve to death, um, and that's really more important than what, what the bread is just sitting there for. And so he gives them the bread, and David eats it. And so what he's saying is the life and health of David and his men is more important than the Sabbath rules. It was better for David to eat the bread than to starve. He then adds to it, right? The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Man was more important than the Sabbath, not the other way around. The Sabbath was instituted by God for the good of mankind, not people were made to keep and follow the rules of the Sabbath. And so what he's saying is for us, don't value rules over people. When Jesus, what Jesus and the disciples were doing was actually not prohibited in the Mosaic Law, but the Pharisees had a stricter interpretation of the law. They've added some rules on top of that. And so the Pharisees taught that to do what the disciples were doing was reaping, threshing, winnowing, which was forbidden work on the Sabbath. And so we want to value people over rules. And so for us, an example of that is one of the ways I think... We don't, I'm hoping we don't do this, um, but this could show up, is we have a process to become a member of our church, and it begins with um, a membership class, and then we actually interview you and get to know you and make sure that you're a believer in Christ and kind of talk about your life and what's going on in it. 
Um, and then eventually you, we vote on you as a congregation to affirm that you are a believer and that you can be a member of our church. <clears throat> and so all of those things that we do are to get to know you and to confirm that you are indeed a believer in Christ and there's not any hidden or unrepentant sin in your life. But if we were to take that process and do it kind of mechanically, we could say this, it may come across as judgmental and exclusive. Hey, we see that we're, you're doing this, and I'm sorry, but you can't do that and be a member, so you're out, right? You're not really good enough to make it in, right? That's not really what we want to do. That's where you're saying, these are the rules, and the rules say you have to do this, and so you're not doing it, so you're out. But that's not the purpose of the rules. The purpose is actually for discipleship, right? To encourage and to support people wherever they may be in their spiritual life. And so instead of sticking strictly to the rules and saying you don't measure up so you're out and excluding people, we value the person over the process and we say, hey, we notice that you're struggling a little bit here. Can we walk with you? Can we help you grow? Can we learn in this area? Would you be willing to meet with somebody? And then we can come back to membership after that, but we want to walk with you. We want you to be a part of what we're doing so that we can support and encourage and love you and to help you grow, right? That's a very different outcome than if you're just saying, the rules say this and you're breaking the rules, so you're out, right? But it's guided by the person is more important. The person is more valuable. And so you treat them with love and grace and compassion and mercy, and you walk alongside them, right? The rules are made to help people, not to rule over them. And sometimes I think we get those mixed up. So next we see in verse 1 of chapter 3, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. <clears throat> and then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Um, we might say that escalated pretty quickly in Mark, right? We're barely into chapter 3, and all this, they're already ready to kill him. We'll come back to that. And so what we can see now is this is the last of what, we, what are actually conflicts. And so there's five conflicts in a row, and then we see the conclusion. The religious leaders did not like what they were hearing from Jesus. And this last one, things are a little bit different, right? It's again on the Sabbath. Jesus and the Pharisees are there, and there's a man with a shriveled hand. But this time, Jesus initiates he gets things moving instead of waiting for a question from the Pharisees. He actually has the man come up and stand in front of everybody. It would be like me calling somebody up on stage right now so that everybody would be able to see what's about to happen. That's essentially what Jesus is doing. And so this is, in the view of the Pharisees, um, 
to back up, the, the Sabbath rules actually permitted healing or permitted helping someone, but it had to be a life and death situation. And so there's actually rules like if your animal falls into a pit and they're about to die, you can pull them out. Um, but if they're stuck and they're just going to be okay till tomorrow, then you're supposed to leave them there. And so same thing with healing. If someone is going to die, you can help them and try to prolong their life. But if they're just a little bit sick, you need to wait till tomorrow for that, right? Because it's the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, in their view, this man with a shriveled hand was not a life and death situation. It could definitely wait until tomorrow. And this is the, we talked about a few weeks ago that Mark likes to make sandwiches, right? Where he puts something at the beginning and something at the end that are very similar, and then he puts details in the middle. And so this is the end of the sandwich for Mark. And so the beginning was the one that we did last week. And remember when they dropped the guy through the roof to be healed, what Jesus said was, not you are healed, but your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus, Mark is coming back to the same point and saying, this man with a shriveled hand is a life and death situation because we're dealing with sin and brokenness and unhealth and it needs to be changed. And so from Jesus' perspective, healing this man was giving him life. It was the kingdom of God breaking into the world with life and salvation. And notice how he started this, his question, right? Is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? So Jesus is there to do good. He's there to heal somebody. But why are the Pharisees there? Why did they come to church or to synagogue this morning? Right? If you look in verse 2, it says, they came to watch Jesus and to accuse him. That's why they came. They essentially came to church to do evil. Their whole purpose was to catch Jesus doing something they could accuse him of. And so people have come to church for a lot of different reasons through the years, but coming to church to accuse someone of something is near the top of the list of reasons maybe not to come to church right? That's not really the motivation. And that's what I want us to see here. Don't value your motives over God's motives. And here's what I mean by that. If you're not a believer and you're here this morning or you're watching online, are you coming to church or checking out Christianity to try and confirm what you already believe about Christians? That they're hypocrites, that they're judgmental, that they're exclusive, or are you here to be open-minded and try to understand? If you're a believer, do you come to church just to sing the songs that you like or to be in the presence of God? Are you here to be encouraged and to feel good about yourself or to be challenged and sharpened by the Word of God? In your job, are you there just to make money? Or are you there because God has sent you there? In retirement, are you there just to take it easy? Are you there to serve God because now you have more time? In your relationships, are you there to be served or to serve others? What is your motivation? Is it for personal gain or for serving God and living the way that He desires? Are you there for good and God's glory? Are you there for evil, essentially, and selfish gain? So we see that, and then Jesus, in front of everybody, asks the man to stick out his hand. And when he does, the man's hand is restored immediately. 
Now, remember, there's a restriction to work on the Sabbath, but Jesus doesn't touch him. He actually doesn't even say, be healed. He just says, stick out your hand, and the guy sticks out his hand, and when he does, everything is made right. So, we would all say, well, it was definitely Jesus who healed him, especially in light of the context, but he doesn't actually look like he did any work, right? But immediately, the Pharisees see this, and they're outraged, and they begin plotting with the Herodians to figure out how they could, he- they could kill Jesus. So we're the beginning of three chapters into Mark, and they're already plotting against him. Now, this was also an interesting partnership because the Pharisees and the Herodians did not get along. Um, And the Pharisees would have considered any king or ruler outside of the line of David to be illegitimate. So they're essentially working with someone that they would never say has any power or authority over their lives. I think well, this, I think we'll understand this one. It would be like Democrats and Republicans working together on a common goal, which is what we all think it should look like, but right now it just doesn't look like that's happening, right? And so it's the old phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They had a common enemy in Jesus. And you may ask, well, what's the real issue here, right? Jesus is going around, he's teaching some stuff, about how to live, that the kingdom of God is here, and he's healing people, right? What is, like, if somebody came and did that, I'm not sure we would all be like, you know what we really need to do with this guy? We got to get him out of here. We got to kill this guy. It looks like from the outside, he's only doing good things. So what's the threat? And it's also similar to things that we see today. Um, He was a threat to their authority and their power, When a group is in power, they will do anything to stay there. And that's what's happening here. And even now, in this moment, we begin to see some connections that Mark has kind of laid out for us about what is going to happen to Jesus. We talked in the very first week about John the Baptist and how John came and then John was handed over or betrayed or arrested. And then the question was, what's going to happen to Jesus? And we begin to see the connection here that the bridegroom will be taken away. They're plotting to kill him, that Jesus is going to be arrested. He is going to be killed. He is hinting even here what will happen to him. And as we talk about the life of discipleship, the journey of discipleship, what Mark is slowly also telling us is this is what also happens to Jesus' disciples. It happens to John. It happens to Jesus. It happens to everyone who follows him. The world is not going to understand what they're doing. They're going to be against it. But the question I want to end with is this. How will you respond to Jesus? When Jesus calls you, to follow him, whether in salvation or to a deeper understanding of him or to do something specific in your life, will you respond like the Pharisees or will you respond like Levi? Right? The Pharisees said, I've already made up my mind. I already know what I need to know. I already know how things are going to go. But Levi says, I'll be open to follow him wherever he leads because it will be better than what I can get on my own. The Pharisees say, I need to protect and guard my way of life, how I like to do things. I will even think I'm better than other people because of my view, because of my lifestyle. 
But Levi says, I will sacrifice to follow him even if it means losing my job, my authority, my riches, my easy way of life. For the Pharisees, it's all about the letter of the law. For Levi and for Jesus, it's about the spirit of the law. For Pharisees, it's about religion, of living a certain way, right? If I follow the law, if I follow the rules, if I live a good life, then God will look on me with favor. If I perform, if I obey, then I am accepted by God. So then you would ask, what are the rules I need to follow so that God will accept me? I've obeyed the law and I've stayed away from sinners who might corrupt me. I followed the strictest interpretation of the law and the guidelines to make sure that I did everything right. And I also made sure that everybody else knows what they're doing wrong. But Levi and Jesus come with the message of the gospel. Right? That Jesus came and he followed all of the rules. That he lived a perfect life. And he knew that I couldn't. So he came and he died for me. He took my place. He took the punishment that I deserved. And in return, he gave me his righteousness. So as I trust in Christ, I am fully accepted. Therefore, I obey. It's saying God has accepted me and sacrificed for me. So how can I honor him and serve him? I seek to show others that Christ came for them too. I read scripture to see how God treats me and seek to treat the same grace, compassion, and mercy. I will let go of my motives and seek to follow God wherever he leads me, regardless of what it may cost. And so will you try to justify yourself to make yourself right in God's eyes by how you live or will you rest knowing that you are justified through Christ? That he did it for you. And that as you believe in him and trust in him, you can have that. We're doing all the rules or obeying him completely. It's okay to make mistakes because he forgives us. And he picks us up and he walks with us. He doesn't judge us and berate us or other things that we might do for people who are just all about following the rules. But he walks with us, he loves us, he shows us grace and compassion. So that's what we're looking for, right? To follow Jesus. To say, whatever Jesus wants for me, that's better than what I can get on my own. You guys pray with me this morning. God, we come before you today and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for a chance this morning just to hear from your word, to, to look at just the, the difference, the, the conflict between the Pharisees, the rule followers, those who thought they had everything figured out, and Jesus who came to help and came to love and came to give compassion and mercy, and he sought out sinners. And we're thankful that you sought us out as sinners, whether we're not yet believers in this room or whether we are believers we are all sinners in need of your grace as we turn to you and rely on you and give our lives over to you you do great things through us and for us it may not be what we had imagined or what we wanted or what we planned out or our life plan or whatever we have goals we may have had but following you is better 
than any of that. So God, I pray that you would help us to let go, let go of traditions, let go of judgments, let go of complacency, that we would seek you wholeheartedly, that we would follow you, that we would seek to live out your calling and to help others to see the same, that you love us and you have grace and compassion and mercy for us. In your name I pray, amen.